I'm really excited about jumping into lesson two here in our walk through church history, Forerunners of the Faith. Welcome to those of you who are visiting. We're going through a study of the history of the church, and you've come at a great time because we're still right at the beginning of it. We're just in lesson two. We do have a workbook that you can go through along with this. If you don't have a workbook, uh, you can get one at the bookstore, you can get them online. Um, you don't need the workbook uh, because everything is in the PowerPoint as well. So if you don't have a workbook this morning, it's no problem. But I just wanted to let you know where to get one if you want one. Also, in the PowerPoint, there are some blanks in your workbook that you can fill in. In the PowerPoint, as we go through, I've underlined the terms that correspond to those blanks so that as we go through, it'll be easy for you to fill out that workbook. Last week, I had done the same thing, but I didn't explain that. And the most common question I got after we were done was, what was that blank? What was this blank? So I want to make sure that you're able to fill in all of the blanks. I know how that feels. It takes you back to school when you feel like you didn't get the, the blank that you needed to fill in. So we've underlined those for you in the PowerPoint. But of course, if you miss one, come up afterwards. I'd be happy to help you get the blanks filled in. Okay, this morning we are really looking at the book of Acts. And as we think about church history, one of the things I love about church history is the reality that church history is important enough that the Holy Spirit inspired a book of church history and put it in your New Testament, and that book is the book of Acts. And so we're going to start on the day of Pentecost. And we're going to work our way through, actually past the book of Acts, all the way to the life of the Apostle John. And so the Apostle John, right at the end of his life, was imprisoned. He was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And so this lesson is from Pentecost, the beginning of the church, to Patmos, the end of the apostolic age. And we're going to be talking about the apostolic age this morning. In the first lesson, we identified kind of the three main pillars of Christian biblical orthodoxy. The, the three pillars that define the true church in any age. And those three pillars were the sanctity of the worship of God, that the true church worships God in spirit and in truth. Then secondly, the supremacy of the word of God, that the true church submits to the Bible, the word of God as its final authority. And then thirdly, and then thirdly, the sufficiency of the work of God, that the true church rests on the gospel of grace, which means that our salvation is not anything because of us, it is entirely because of what the Lord Jesus did on our behalf. So the worship of God, the word of God, and the work of God in salvation, these three pillars define the true church. And one of the really cool things about the book of Acts is we see all three of those pillars come together in the preaching and advancement of the gospel. Because what is the gospel other than the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. It's his work in salvation. It's the preaching of his word, the gospel itself. The word of God points to the gospel. The central message of the Bible is the gospel. And it's all so that those who have 
worshipped idols and followed after sin might repent and turn from those things and turn to worship the true and living God. So the gospel is the word of God about the work of God in salvation so that those who are idolaters and slaves of sin might become worshipers of Jesus Christ. So we see all three of those pillars come together in the book of Acts. So this morning we're going to do really a jet tour through the book of Acts and beyond and we'll be moving quickly but uh, I'm excited about looking at the first authoritative record of church history in the book of Acts itself. All right, in order to talk about this, we need to start by talking about the apostolic age. Uh, The book of Acts, of course, is, as I just said, the first book of church history ever written, and it was written by Luke, and we'll talk a little bit about even the timing of that. When he wrote that, it was written under the apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul, and it covers roughly the first 30 years of church history from the day of Pentecost, which I believe took place in the year A.D. 30, up until around the year A.D. 62. So the first three decades of church history are recorded in the book of Acts. Now, if you're thinking about the book of Acts, and in fact, if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to the book of Acts because that's where we're going to spend most of our time. The key verse in Acts is Acts 1.8. And really, this serves as an outline for the book of Acts. It's not just the thesis statement. It's the outline of the book. Here you have Jesus right before his ascension telling his apostles that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, Jesus says, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. This is the theme verse of the book of Acts because the book of Acts is about the spread of the gospel. We call it Acts because... Its more full title would be the Acts of the Apostles, but really it's not about the Acts of the Apostles. It's about the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles as they preached the Word of God, and then the Holy Spirit took that Word, convicted hearts, and transformed lives. And it's about the power of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And the reason I say that this verse provides an outline to the book of Acts is because what we see in Acts is the gospel reaching Jerusalem and Judea. That's in Acts chapter 2 through Acts 7. Then the gospel reaches Samaria in Acts chapter 8. Then in Acts 9, we have the conversion of Saul, also known as Paul. And he will be the apostle to the Gentiles. And through Paul's ministry, starting in Acts 9 really with the conversion of Cornelius in Acts 10, all the way through the end of the book, Acts 28, we see the gospel reaching to the ends of the Roman Empire. And then the rest of church history is the gospel going even beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire, literally to the ends of the earth. Even us sitting here today in Los Angeles, we're about as far from Jerusalem as you can get. If you were to look at a globe, we're on the opposite side of the globe. We represent the fulfillment of this promise that the gospel would reach the ends of the earth. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the apostolic age. The book of Acts 
features the advancement of the gospel through the preaching of the apostles, as we've said, especially the ministry of Peter and Paul. In fact, if you were looking for an alternate way to outline the book of Acts, Peter is really featured in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. Paul's ministry is featured in chapters 13 through 28. Of course, as I mentioned, his conversion is in Acts chapter 9. And what we find in the book of Acts is we find a very different sense of the ministry of the apostles. And the gospels, especially around the time of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, the disciples are cowering in fear. And yet when we come to Acts chapter 2, we find Peter, for example, the one who denies Jesus three times, just 50 days after those events, standing up and boldly proclaiming Christ so that some 3,000 souls are added to the church, what is the difference between Peter at the end of Luke and Peter in Acts 2? The answer to that is twofold. It's the reality of the resurrection of our Lord and then the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 that explains the courage that the apostles have in terms of their ministry. Okay, a little bit more about the apostolic age. The word apostle means sent one or ambassador. And when we're talking about the apostles of Jesus Christ, that's a very important title. In the same way that we could use the word ambassador in just a a general sense, Uh, he's an ambassador of goodwill. For someone to be an ambassador of the United States means something very different. For someone to be an apostle of Jesus Christ was a specific title. It referred to a limited group of people. And those people had to, they met certain qualifications. Let me show you what those qualifications are here on the next slide. An apostle of Jesus Christ had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. He had to be directly appointed by Jesus Christ And he also had to be able to confirm his mission and his message with miraculous signs. And it's important for us to understand that after the apostle John, who was the last surviving apostle, the longest living apostle, died around the year 100, there have not been any capital A apostles of Jesus Christ in church history since that time. And that's because no one can meet these three criteria And in fact, with regard to the first one, Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 says he was the last of the apostles to see the risen Christ with his own eyes. That becomes important a little bit later when we study church history to understand that the apostolic age is unique, that it was for the foundation of the church that it is non-repeated in church history, and that there are not apostles in the church today. Okay, a little bit more about the apostolic age. The apostle John, as we mentioned, was the last surviving apostle. He died around the year 100, and no one after John has met the qualifications of what is required to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the apostles of Jesus Christ were specifically authorized to give new revelation to the church, and that's part of the reason they're so important. And even, and just as a side note, even the reason we would say the New Testament canon is closed is because you can't add anything to the New Testament without an apostle being the one that authorizes it. And there are no apostles in the church today. 
I want to talk a little bit now about the day of Pentecost. The church was born on the day of Pentecost, which is one of the major Jewish feasts in the year A.D. 30. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of Hades, the gates of death would not prevail against it. That promise initially fulfilled in his resurrection, ultimately fulfilled throughout all of church history. Jesus Christ has built his church and he began to build his church on the day of Pentecost in the year A.D. 30. I think it's helpful just to talk through some events that lead up to the day of Pentecost. Uh, This may surprise you a little bit, but uh, we believe, let me go back to that, we believe that the Lord Jesus was actually born uh, four to five years B.C. Now, when that dating structure was initially constructed in the Middle Ages, the scholars who put it together BC stands for before Christ. They were just slightly off on the way that they reconstructed the events of history and new information, especially about the death of Herod the Great, has demonstrated that uh, Herod the Great probably died around 4 BC, which means Jesus was born before that because we know Jesus was born before Herod the Great died. So We believe Jesus was actually born around 4 or 5 BC. What that means is that it was around AD 8. By the way, AD stands for in the year of our Lord. It's a Latin phrase, anno domine, in the year of our Lord. So it was around AD 8, uh, 12 years later, that Jesus made that trip to the temple. That's recorded in Luke chapter 2. Uh, Luke goes on to say that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And so that would be around A.D. 26 that the Lord began his earthly ministry. And we know from the Gospels that his ministry was roughly three and a half years. And so in A.D. 30, his final Passover, which would have been his crucifixion and resurrection... And that would put the birth of the church in May or June of A.D. 30 at the Feast of Pentecost, which was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. Okay, so in case you're interested how we get to the year A.D. 30, uh, that's a rough and very uh, high-level chronology of some of the events in the life of our Lord. And of course, those events are recorded in the Gospels, and the Gospels For example, the Gospel of Luke covers roughly 30 years of history, the history of the life of Jesus Christ and his earthly ministry. And then the book of Acts covers roughly the next 30 years, the 30 years of church history. So let's talk a little bit more about the day of Pentecost. According to Acts chapter 1, Jesus' followers, about 120 people, were gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem. They were there praying and they were awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, then, we have a description of the coming of the Holy Spirit. We have the sound of a rushing wind. We have tongues of fire appearing uh, above the heads of the, again, the 120 who were gathered there. Uh, This is an artist's depiction of that event, a woodcut from the 19th century. Um, I'll include a a few of these kinds of illustrations throughout this PowerPoint, and I'll make some comments along the way. Uh, 
The way that this is generally imagined, Acts chapter 2, the, especially the sort of the tongues of fire above the heads of the followers of Jesus, the way it's often depicted is, is kind of like a little flame, like everybody was a little candle and there's a little you know, flame above their head. It's, if you've ever driven by a Methodist church, it's sort of the Methodist church insignia that's sort of pictured in the mind when we think about this. But I actually think that Acts chapter 2, the tongues of fire there probably were more like flashes of lightning and the rush of the wind, the sound that was made. When you take the the sound itself along with the the picture of of lightning, it, it harkens back to what God did in representing his presence in the exodus from Egypt at Mount Sinai back in Exodus 19 and 20. And that's significant. I think you have a very deliberate throwback to God meeting with his people at the beginning of the Mosaic Covenant. Now we have God meeting with his people at the beginning of the New Covenant. And so there seem to be some deliberate... Um, connections that God himself is making with his presence at Sinai and now his presence with his people in the upper room. So maybe just a little bit of a different way to think about what the tongues of fire may have been in Acts chapter 2. We also have in Acts chapter 2 the um, miraculous gift of speaking in tongues. And this is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, it shows the undoing of, for example, the Tower of Babel. More importantly, what it demonstrates is that the gospel is going to go to all of the languages of the world. That the gospel is not just for the nation of Israel. The gospel is for people from every tribe, tongue, uh, people, and nation. And... At Pentecost, you would have had Jewish pilgrims from all throughout the Roman Empire coming back to Jerusalem, and they came to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, but they grew up in places where they didn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic as their native language. And so as they return to Jerusalem, all of a sudden they hear not just the 11 plus Matthias, the apostles, but probably others of the 120 who had gathered in that upper room and received the Holy Spirit, now going throughout Jerusalem and preaching fluently in languages that they had never learned before, which is an amazing thing to consider. I, I wish the gift of tongues were still active. Um, and, and just for the record, you know, uttering gibberish in your closet at home is not the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues was the miraculous ability to speak a foreign language you had never gone to school to learn. You never bought the Rosetta Stone CDs. This is absolutely incredible. It is a miraculous work of God. It authenticates that God is at work Paul says in 1 Corinthians that it was a sign to the unbelieving Jews that God was now doing something, and he was doing something that had international implications. And if you look in Acts chapter 2, you'll see that Luke lists, I think it's close to 16 different regions where people from those regions heard the gospel in their own native language because the apostles were given this amazing ability. And again, this demonstrates that the gospel now is for all people of all language groups, 
which is an amazing thing to consider and is something that we as a predominant congregation of Gentiles are the wonderful recipients of. The Apostle Peter, so the Apostle Peter then stands up and preaches an amazing sermon that's recorded in Acts chapter 2. And the result of that sermon is that, as we see here on the next slide, the result of that sermon is that some 3,000 souls are added to the church. They profess faith in Christ. They repent from their sin to follow the living and true God. And as a sign of their repentance, they are baptized and added to the church. And so this is the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2. And we trace our history as Christians to this starting point. After the day of Pentecost, if we continue on in our survey of Acts, we see the gospel continuing to advance in spite of increasing persecution. And so in Acts chapter 3, we have that great story of Peter and John on their way to the temple, and they see the lame man who is there, and he asks for silver and gold, and Peter says, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I do have, I'll give to you in the name of Jesus, arise and walk, and the guy gets up miraculously healed and starts dancing around and everybody's amazed as you would expect and Peter again preaches an incredible gospel sermon that Jesus is the Messiah and that Israel must repent and turn to follow and worship him uh, as a result of that Peter's put on uh, Peter and his fellow apostles are warned uh, then in Acts chapter 4, they're warned again. In Acts chapter 5, we have that great statement that Peter makes before the Sanhedrin where he says, we must obey God rather than men. And again, where does this courage come from? It comes from their understanding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then the inner power and conviction provided by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, we have the appointment of Stephen and others in the church to help serve. Stephen was a powerful evangelist, as you know, and in Acts chapter 7, he preaches an amazing sermon, and then he is stoned to death by the religious leaders. That martyrdom is very, very important in the unfolding narrative of the book of Acts, and we'll explain why in just a moment. And the word martyr does mean uh, witness. All right, these events likely took place within the first two years of the history of the church, the events of Acts 1 to 7. And here you have, a, again, a woodcut of Peter and John with that man at the temple. Now, I do want to make a comment about some of the art that you sometimes see in church history, and this picture demonstrates it well. This is the, the stoning of Stephen, or at least a medieval artist's impression of the stoning of Stephen. When it comes to art and church history, unless the person is actually painting a real-time portrait, the art always reflects more about the artist and the projections of the artist than it necessarily does about the actual events that are being portrayed. And I think that's a helpful thing for us to keep in mind. So, for example, here the artist attempted to depict two different scenes from the life of Stephen. On the left, you have him appearing before the Sanhedrin, and then on the right, you have him being stoned. 
But there are quite a number of historical inaccuracies in this painting, as you can probably tell. Uh, First and foremost, Stephen did not dress like a medieval Roman Catholic monk. Uh, So he would not have been wearing that garb. Uh, He did not have a glowing frisbee around his head. Um, That, of course, is the halo, which actually Christians adopted from Eastern religion. In Eastern religion, a halo was used to depict holy figures. And so in Christian art, they like to draw... um, I don't know. I, I always think that it looks like they're preparing for a NASA mission. But they like to draw the halo around the head. And and then even the way that Stephen's being stoned, it looks like they're picking up some small rocks and kind of, it almost looks like a first century game of dodgeball. That's not what happened in Acts chapter 7. I do think this woodcut has a, a, a better impression of what happened in the stoning of Stephen. And of course, the stoning of Stephen, who was there but Saul, and Saul is holding the coats of those who are participating in the execution of Stephen. Stephen was a martyr of Jesus Christ, a witness to Jesus Christ, even unto death. And as I mentioned already, this martyrdom will have significant implications for what happens in the book of Acts. As a result of the persecution. So Stephen is martyred and then persecution erupts against Christians throughout Jerusalem and Judea. And so the church that had gathered again from all throughout the Roman Empire because of those pilgrims who had come for Pentecost, the church that had gathered and stayed in Jerusalem and Judea now begins to scatter. So God uses persecution to send the seeds of the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire, and even beyond the Roman Empire. And we see that in Acts chapter 8, the very next chapter, that the gospel now goes to Samaria. And then through Philip the Evangelist, it also goes to an Ethiopian court official. He was a Jewish proselyte, but he would have taken the gospel with him back to Ethiopia. And then in Acts chapter 9, we're going to see Saul, the persecutor of the church, become uh, Paul the missionary. I'm going to talk about that just for a moment. But this unexpected and remarkable conversion is going to see the gospel now advance to the ends of the earth. And so Acts 1.8, that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and now through persecution, it moves beyond Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria. And even through the persecutor Saul, who becomes the missionary Paul, it extends to the ends of the earth. I do want to make just one quick comment about Saul, Paul. Uh, sometimes we think, and, and we often even reference Saul, we think that Saul is his pre-Christian name and that Paul is sort of his post-Christian name. Like in Acts 8, he's Saul, and in Acts 9, he becomes Paul. Uh, that's, that would be an incorrect uh, conclusion. And I realize sometimes it's easier to just talk about Saul, Paul, because Saul the murderer was so much different than Paul the missionary. But Saul actually was a name that he had his entire life, and Paul was a name that he had his entire life. Saul was his Hebrew name, his Jewish name, of course, referencing the first king of Israel, and Paul was his Greek name. And he actually is known as Saul in the book of Acts for at least 
15, uh, yeah, at least 15 years after his conversion, it's not until his first missionary journey that he starts to use the name Paul because he is going out to Greek, Roman, Gentile contexts where his Greek name, his Roman name, becomes much more useful for him in those contexts. So just in case you ever thought Saul was just his pre-conversion name, it's maybe a helpful corrective. All right. So in Acts chapter 7 and in Acts chapter 9, we see that Saul's persecution efforts against the church lead to the scattering of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And one of the things that's really kind of cool is to realize that in Acts chapter 11, which we'll talk about here in just a moment, there were Christians because, and Luke says this in Acts 11, he says there were per- Christians who fled from Jerusalem because of the persecution of, uh, because of the martyrdom of Stephen, the persecution that erupted as a result of Stephen's death. There were Christians who left Jerusalem and actually went north to a place called Antioch, which is in modern day, it's in modern day Turkey, but at that time it was considered Syria, Syrian Antioch. They went to Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, and they began to preach the gospel. And they preached the gospel among fellow Jews and then eventually also to Gentiles. And there were Gentiles who were converted. And there was a church that was started there. And as we'll talk about here in a moment, the apostles send Barnabas to be the pastor of that church. One of the things that I think is amazingly ironic in God's providence is that Barnabas is going to call Paul to come co-pastor that church in Antioch. So the persecution that Paul was part of in Acts 7 causes people to go to Antioch and start a church that then Paul becomes the pastor of just a few years later. That's mind-boggling to me that there would have been people in that first church who were like, hey, I remember when you tried to kill me and now you're my pastor. That just, um, I don't know. The book of Acts and God's providence are amazing. Uh, Here's a woodcut of Paul on the road to Damascus. I don't know. I think it was probably a little more dramatic than this. But of course, he's headed to Damascus to persecute Christians and Christ himself intercepts Paul on the way and Paul is radically converted. As a new believer, uh, Paul is actually, we know from Galatians 1 and 2 that it's Uh, 17 years between Paul's conversion and the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council was in AD 49 or 50, which would make Paul's conversion around the year 32 or 33. So in case chronology is helpful to you, Saul, Paul is converted two to three years after the birth of the church. And according to Galatians 1, 16 to 18, he spends several years being mentored by the Lord in the Arabian wilderness. He comes back to Damascus. You guys know the story about him being let down in the basket over the city wall. He goes back to Jerusalem. Everybody's scared of him. This is the guy that tried to kill us. Barnabas befriends him. And eventually there's a plot to take Paul's life. It feels like every chapter of Acts has a a plot to kill Paul. That's sort of the, the plot of the book of Acts. Paul is faithful, and the enemies of the gospel want to kill him, and eventually he's sent to Caesarea and then back to Tarsus, and it's from there that he will then join Barnabas to become that co-pastor in Antioch. 
Uh, one of the things that I think is really kind of interesting is in Caesarea, and this is, there's a couple of Caesareas in the Bible, and that's because the Caesars like to name towns after themselves, and that's what Caesarea means. But this is the Caesarea that was on the coast. It's called Caesarea Maritima. And Caesarea Maritima is where Paul will eventually be imprisoned for a couple of years when he's under the trial of Festus and Felix. We'll talk about that in a moment. But at the end of Acts chapter 8, Philip the evangelist, after he's done talking to the Ethiopian court official, he's taken away by the spirit. He, he actually goes to Caesarea Maritima. And in Acts chapter 9, Paul, after he's in Jerusalem, he goes to Caesarea Maritima. I find that significant because that means there was a gospel witness through Philip and through Paul in Caesarea prior to coming to Acts chapter 10. Well, why does that matter? Well, because in Acts chapter 10, we meet a guy named Cornelius. And where is Cornelius from? Cornelius is from Caesarea. And so I think, and I'm filling in on maybe a little bit of the white space in the book of Acts, but I think Cornelius may have been impacted by the preaching of Philip and of Paul, and he's going to be permanently transformed by the preaching of Peter. Uh, really interesting, actually, in Acts chapter 10, Peter is in Joppa when uh, Cornelius's uh, servants come to find him. And the reason I find that so fascinating, I was thinking about this last night as I was looking at Acts chapter 10, is... Who else do we know from biblical history went to Joppa? Jonah, right? Jonah goes to Joppa. Jonah's supposed to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles of Nineveh. But instead, Jonah goes to Joppa and gets on a ship and tries to go as far as he can the other direction. Here we have Peter in Joppa. And God gives him a vision, a vision of a sheet of unclean animals, which is a reference back to the dietary laws in Leviticus 11. And then God tells him, what I have declared to be clean, no longer consider unclean, which was a metaphorical way of saying, you consider Gentiles to be unclean, but I am going to make them clean through the gospel. And then the servants of Cornelius arrive, and Peter, instead of getting on a boat and trying to go as far west as he can, goes with them, and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his household, and Cornelius is converted. Now, Acts chapter 10 is a really, really, really big deal for us as Gentiles. And some of you here today may have Jewish heritage. That's wonderful. But for most of us, we are non-Jewish, which means we're Gentiles, which is a categorical way of including everybody else. Acts chapter 10 is really important I think it's important for two reasons. One is trivial. The other is truly transcendent. The trivial reason is because it gives us permission to eat bacon cheeseburgers because it shows that the dietary laws are no longer in effect. That's the trivial reason. And that's also to make you hungry for lunch. But the, the transcendent reason is because it demonstrates that the gospel is for all people. And so again, Acts chapter 2, the gospel goes to all languages. Now Acts chapter 10, the gospel is not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Samaritans. It's not just for Jewish proselytes. We've seen all that in Acts 2 through 8. 
It's also for Gentiles, and you don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. And you have to understand, we take that for granted because we're 2,000 years into the history of the church, but at the time, that is mind-boggling, paradigm-shifting stuff. And the reason Peter needs to be there is because Peter needs to authenticate. In fact, he goes back in Acts chapter 11 to the Jerusalem council, which is the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem. And he tells them what happened because initially they're like, I can't believe you went into the house of a Gentile. And he's like, let me tell you what happened. And after they hear that, they rejoice and marvel at the fact that God had seen fit to grant even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. So you're here today as a Christian because of what God accomplished in Acts chapter 10, which is just really cool to think about. So the gospel is not just for the Jewish people, not just for the nation of Israel. It is for the Gentiles. Uh, We've already talked about Acts chapter 11 and how... As a result of the persecution of Stephen, the gospel goes forth throughout the Roman Empire. A large number of Gentiles come to Christ in Antioch, and so the apostles, they send Barnabas, and Barnabas then goes and gets Saul, who is in Tarsus at that point, to come and help. And so around the year 45... Saul serves as the co-pastor with Barnabas in the First Baptist Church of Antioch. That wasn't actually his title, but... And I think it's just, again, I think it's amazing to think that you have a church now in Jerusalem pastored by the apostles, and then you have the first predominantly Gentile church to the north in Antioch pastored by Paul and Barnabas. What, I mean... Just how cool is that? And it was in Acts chapter 11 in Antioch that Luke tells us that the believers who had been called followers of the way, a reference to John 14, uh, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that they first became called Christians, which means followers of the Messiah. So that's where we get that name. All right, after going to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned for their first missionary journey. And they go to a number of places. Uh, We don't have time to get into all the details of these various locations. One thing that I would just point out, and and in fact, I, I do have a map on the next slide, but it's kind of small, so if you don't like it, there are maps in the back of your Bible, almost certainly, that depict the missionary journeys of of Paul. And one of the things that's fascinating is you can see that Paul was from Tarsus. They leave from Antioch. They go to another place called Antioch and then, and then eventually to Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. Uh, when they get to Derbe, and Lystra is where Paul was stoned and left for dead, and then he gets up and goes right back into the city. Amazing stories. I just absolutely love Uh, some of the stories and accounts of courage and conviction that come out of Paul's missionary journeys. But when he gets to Derby, if you look at a map, it looks like he should just keep going to Tarsus and back to Antioch, sort of complete the loop. And that would make sense if you're looking at a map. Again, the map that I have here is actually not showing up at all. 
There you go. You're really going to need the map in the back of your Bible. Um, but the reason it's so amazing is that he, instead of completing the loop, he actually turns around and goes back through the very cities where he had just been. And so on his first missionary journey, Paul actually visits each of these places twice, the main cities where he had seen uh, conversions. And the reason for that is because he wanted to strengthen the disciples and also to appoint elders in the churches. And I just find that amazing. And that slide's not working, so we're going to keep going here. In Acts chapter 13, and this is important, in Acts chapter 13, 38 and 39, we have the Apostle Paul preaching his first gospel message recorded in the book of Acts. And he does this in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, which is a different Antioch. He does this in the synagogue, and he does so by going through the Old Testament, as is his custom, and demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah and Savior. He talks about the death of Christ, talks about the resurrection of Christ, and then he gets to the climax of the gospel message, and it is this. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you that through Jesus Christ, this man, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And I want to point out the fact that in those two verses, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that forgiveness from sin and justification in the eyes of God, those two realities, those two saving realities are available not on the basis of keeping the law of Moses, but rather through faith alone in Jesus Christ. So Paul's gospel message on his first missionary journey was a message of salvation by grace through faith apart from works. This becomes important because after Paul gets back home, he gets challenged by some false teachers Luke says, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then they go to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The book of Acts is all about the gospel. It's about the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Acts 15, what's called the Jerusalem Council, is about what the gospel truly is. Is the gospel the good news that you can be a Christian if you believe in Jesus and also are circumcised and follow the law of Moses? In other words, do you have to become Jewish, a practicing Jew, in order to be a Christian? That's what these legalists taught that you had to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. They become known in church history as the Judaizers. Paul's gospel, as we just saw, was that you don't have to follow the law of Moses to be a Christian. To be saved, you only have to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. Through faith alone, you are saved. So the Jerusalem Council, the apostles get together, they talk about this, and... The Apostle Peter actually is the one who articulates and defends Paul's gospel. Oh, yeah, there's a picture of Peter and Paul. They didn't look anything like that, but some guy thought they did. 
Okay. So look at what Peter says. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And then look at what Peter says. And God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's a reference to the law of Moses. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. So that's an amazing statement because Peter affirms that both Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way. They're saved by having their hearts cleansed by faith. That's verse 9. And they're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from the works of the law. That's verse 11. And so at this first council, you have an affirmation of the true gospel. And it is a gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. And that faith is placed entirely in the finished work, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it was under the leadership of James then that the true gospel is defended. Paul then and Barnabas go on a number of excuse me, Paul and Silas go on a second missionary journey along with Timothy. They go to places that you'll recognize because there are books in your New Testament that were written to some of these churches, places like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. That's where the Bereans were more noble because they searched the scriptures. Paul goes to Athens in Acts 17 and preaches that great gospel message to Corinth and then back to Antioch and As was his custom, Paul would go into the synagogue. He would teach the people there. Eventually, his message would be rejected. And so after teaching through the Old Testament in the synagogue, he would then go and preach to the Gentiles in that city. And again, my map is not showing up on the PowerPoint, so I apologize for that. But you can find it in the back of your Bible. I do have a map. I feel like I should show you all. I do have a map. It's just not showing up on the screen. So I apologize for that. A third missionary journey to places like Ephesus. In fact, it was in Ephesus that Paul ministered for two years and all of Asia Minor heard the gospel. We know that the church in Colossae was planted as a result of the training that took place while Paul was ministering in Ephesus. Uh, At the end of Paul's third missionary journey, and again, you're going to have to use the map in the back of your Bible to... Oh, hey, there it is. Um, At the end of Paul's third missionary journey, Paul actually travels back to Jerusalem, even though he knows that he is going to be arrested in Jerusalem. And that is, in fact, what happens. He is arrested. He's accused of bringing an uncircumcised uh, person into the temple. That was not actually true. But on the basis of that accusation, the religious leaders arrested him. As, as He's actually put on trial before the Sanhedrin. Then he's put on trial before a couple of Roman governors. He's actually put in prison there in Caesarea for two years. 
During that period of two years, we believe Luke, who was Paul's traveling companion, spent that time interviewing eyewitnesses throughout Israel, throughout Judea, and then composing his gospel. And so Luke probably wrote his gospel while Paul was uh, in prison in Caesarea. And then um, Paul eventually is on trial under a second Roman governor, Festus. Paul, as you'll remember, had uh, appealed to Caesar. And uh, King Herod Agrippa, who was the son of Herod the Great, King Herod Agrippa, um, actually the grandson of Herod the Great, King Herod Agrippa II, came and he affirmed that Paul had not done anything worthy of death. But because he had appealed to Caesar, to Caesar he must go. And then, of course, Paul gets an all-expenses-paid Mediterranean cruise that ends in a shipwreck and a snake bite on the Isle of Malta. Um, one thing that I just want to point out about King Herod Agrippa II is that he will become important a little bit later in church history. So just sort of stick a mental sticky note on that point that Herod Agrippa II hears Paul give his testimony and preach the gospel in Acts 26. And at the end of it, he says to Paul, you almost convince me to become a Christian. And of course, Paul says, I wish you were. I wish you were just like me, except for these chains. And uh, it's interesting to see that Herod Agrippa, again, the grandson of Herod the Great, was um, convinced at least in part, by Paul's message. Uh, Herod Agrippa II was the son of the Herod who was eaten by worms in Acts chapter 12. Oh, well, that map didn't work. Okay. Um, I include this picture because uh, I think this is how some people uh, picture the Apostle Paul as a guy who was just haggard and downcast. And I mean, Paul went through a lot. You read 2 Corinthians 11 and you read all of the things that he endured. And you're like, oh man, this guy must beat up so much. He must have just been kind of, I don't know, hunkering in the shadows. That's how this kind of depicts him. I think that's totally wrong. When you see Paul, he gets to Rome. He's there for at least two years. That's where the book of Acts ends. The book of Acts ends at that point, we think, because Luke had written it up to the time at which he was writing. He was with Paul in Rome, writing about all that had happened, and the book of Acts ends. But it completes that outline from Acts 1-8 because it shows that the gospel had gotten to the capital city of the pagan empire. It had reached sort of the next foothold in its ongoing advancement to reach the ends of the earth. But what we find is Paul is there under house arrest in Rome. He writes what's called his prison epistles. That would be Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. What we find is that Paul is actually joyous and confident and courageous and victorious. So a picture like this doesn't do Paul justice. Paul doesn't care. He's in heaven rejoicing around the throne of Christ. But I always feel like pictures like this depict him in the worst possible way. And not at all how we see him in both the book of Acts. Here he's depicted on the Isle of Malta. And also how he describes himself in places like Philippians, where he's talking about how joyful he is, even though he is in prison awaiting trial. Now, we have good reason to believe that Paul was released from that first Roman imprisonment and that he went on what we would call a fourth missionary journey. This is after the book of Acts ends. 
Uh, we do believe that Paul actually made it to Spain, and that is not only because Paul says he wants to go to Spain, but because the early church fathers said that he did go to Spain, which is an amazing thing to consider. Okay, I'm looking at the clock and I'm realizing I'm not going to make it. So, we're not going to try. We're just going to land the plane. Sometimes a water landing is necessary, right? That's why they put flotation devices under your seat. Paul writes that his past, or he writes his pastoral epistles after his release, and he writes his epistles to encourage suffering believers to stand firm. Here's another picture of Paul that I just don't know if it does him justice, but in any case, a picture of a painting of him writing his epistles. I'm going to end with the persecution of Nero, which will get us to the end of Paul's life, and uh, we'll land the plane there. It was in July of AD 64 that a fire broke out in the city of Rome, and if there's one natural disaster that we can understand, it's fires. I feel like we always get blamed for earthquakes, but the reality is the fires are much more of a regular event in our world than earthquakes are. And it was a fire that destroyed or severely damaged 10 of the 14 districts of Rome, which was massive. And as I'm sure you'll remember, Nero was blamed, he was the emperor, he was blamed for being behind the fire. In fact, there's that metaphor of Nero fiddling while Rome burned. Uh, The reality is Nero was not in Rome at the time. He was actually in a different part of the Roman Empire, but... There were rumors that he was behind it because after the city burned, he started building a giant palace on a portion of the city where he would not have been able to build that unless it had been decimated by fire. And in order to divert the rumors, uh, Nero needed someone to blame, and he chose the Christians. So Nero began to persecute the Christians, and he began to do so in horrific ways. We know this from Tacitus and others just very uh, brutal forms of persecution. And so in Second uh, Timothy, uh, as Paul describes uh, the end of his ministry, Paul was arrested again, thrown into a dungeon in Rome. First and Second Peter, First Peter describing the persecution that's coming. And then the book of Hebrews. The Jewish population was not persecuted. The Christian perse- population was. And so in the book of Hebrews, we have... Uh, Jewish people who had become Christians who are tempted to go back to Judaism in order to avoid the persecution. So Nero's persecution explains the historic backdrop for all four of these books. All right, final slide here. Paul was imprisoned a second time and executed prior to Nero's death in AD 68. And Peter also was... uh, imprisoned and executed. Uh, Peter was executed by being uh, crucified upside down. So I know I'm ending the PowerPoint at this point, but I do want to be sensitive to the clock. Acts 1.8, do we see that promise fulfilled in the book of Acts? Absolutely we do. The Holy Spirit comes, Acts 2, the birth of the church. The power of Christ through the preaching of his gospel is seen And it goes forth to Judea and Jerusalem, Acts 2 through 7, to Samaria, Acts 8. And then through the conversion of Paul, 
Acts 9, and the conversion of Cornelius, Acts 10, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we're going to see, starting next week, as we move past the apostolic age, the continuation of the advancement of the gospel as it goes beyond the Roman Empire and literally does go to the ends of the earth. So I'm excited to continue that, and I'll manage our time better next week. Let me pray for us, and then you'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we are incredibly grateful for all that we see you doing in the book of Acts. It is the acts of the Holy Spirit. It is your work, and we rejoice in it. Father, I pray that in our own generation, we would be faithful, like the apostles were, to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. And though we may not be in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria, we are in the remotest parts of the earth. So may we be faithful as witnesses to your truth so that we might point people to your work so that those who worship themselves and are slaves to their sin might be worshipers of Jesus Christ and his servants. We pray this in his name. Amen.